Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 74. I'm not sorry. The Apology of Apuleius. The Apologia is a courtroom speech, but a published courtroom speech, so we have every reason to assume that Apuleius polished it up for publication. Nevertheless, we think it reflects an actual trial, which occurred sometime between 158 and 159 CE, and some scholars think it is a literal transcript of the proceedings, which is certainly possible in principle. Here is the bare-bones outline of that story. Uh, Keep in mind from the outset that we only possess his side of the story. So, Apuleius was on his way to Alexandria, and he arrived at the city of Oya, which is Tripoli in modern-day Libya. He was staying with friends there, the Apii, and his old flatmate from his Athenian student days, Sicinius Pontinianus, came by. Sicinius was looking for a husband for his recently widowed mother, Pudentilla, to avoid her fortune being dispersed among a group of avaricious relatives who were in line to inherit it. So, under Roman law, if the widow remarries, she gets to keep her late husband's fortune, or rather, her new husband gets to keep it, and she hopefully gets the benefit of it. Apuleius moved to her house by the sea, and stayed there for a year, gave some public orations in Oya, and the couple were indeed married, perhaps in late 157 or early 158 CE. So far, so good. Then, Sicinius Pontinianus, Apuleius' old mate, dies, and his brother, Sicinius Pudens, moves in with their uncle, Sicinius Aemilianus. Remember that name, Aemilianus. Now, this guy is a bad influence, according to Apuleius. Then a certain Rufinus and Aemilianus use Pudens to attack Apuleius in court, accusing him of having used love magic to gain his current wife. So let's back up and recap here for a minute because it's a bit of a soap opera and we need to keep all the people straight. The idea is that Aemilianus, who is the brother of the dead guy, the widow's late husband, and so he would be in line to inherit something when his brother died, right? He is keen to do so, but the money is going to stay with the widow if she remarries, so he doesn't want her to remarry. And we should say we're not really talking about money here, but about the typical wealth of a Roman provincial elite, which is based in agrarian slave labor. So Apuleius actually mentions some of the um, wealth involved, farmlands, a house, which is probably something we would consider like a, a big rambling country mansion, crops, livestock, and 400 slaves, and this is only part of the uh, wealth involved, so this is a considerable sum, as it were. Since she remarried Apuleius, Aemilianus is pissed off and wants somehow to call the legality of the wedding into question. Pudens, the widow's surviving son, right, the brother of Apuleius's flatmate who died, is being used as a tool by Emilianus, according to Apuleius. He's really not such a bad kid, but his evil uncle is using him so he can claw back the widow's inheritance for himself. The uncle needs to hide behind this stooge because he wants to avoid the stiff penalties for bringing false accusations under a Roman law called the Lex Remia. So the Lex Remia was intended to make people hesitate before taking people to court by sanctioning those who did under false pretenses, right? So if you take someone to court, it can, it can rebound against you under the Lex Remia, unless the person is found guilty. 
Emilianus is the prosecutor, along with some hired advocates, officially speaking on behalf of the young Pudens, but according to Apuleius, he's really working on his own behalf. So, the charge is sorcery, love magic. But there was also a charge of murder. Apparently, it was claimed that Apuleius had killed his old flatmate, Sicinius Pontinianus. But this charge was quickly dropped, presumably when the accusers realized no one was going to buy it. We can only speculate that maybe the accusation of sorcery was kind of a plan B after the murder accusation foundered. But at any rate, the trial has been going on for four or five days now before we get to Apuleius's surviving speech. Now, the accusation of sorcery is punishable under a Roman law called the Lex Cornelia de Sicaris and Venificis, the Cornelian law against assassins and poisoners. The punishment would be death for the lower orders or exile for an upper-class person like Apuleius. Um, there's some wrangling in the scholarship over whether this would also have entailed loss of caput, which is citizen status, but anyway, it would certainly entail major loss of prestige. So what, you ask, does assassination and poisoning have to do with magic, per se? Well, first of all, there was a strong connection in the Greco-Roman mind between poison and what we call magic. So we can adduce here the Greek concept of pharmakon, which can mean a poison, it can mean a drug, it can also mean an incantation, and something analogous existed in Latin, so that, for example, in Virgil's Eighth Eclogue, he mentions that certain herbae and venena, so plants and poisons, can be used to transfer crops from one field to another. There may actually have been a clause in the Twelve Tables of Roman Law against precisely this kind of crop transferal through, uh, I guess, the natural magic of herbs, we would say. So what are these Twelve Tables, you ask? Well, gentle listener, maybe a short discursus on Roman law is in order here to get on a better footing regarding all this magic business. Many of you are not here to hear about Roman law, but about magic. However, as we shall see... Um, the question of what magic is, is very much dependent on its legal status in a given situation. And in this situation, the whole point is, is what I did, or what you claim I did, against the law? So let's get into it. Going way back in time, Roman law had been an oral affair. But in 450 BCE, the Roman Republican period, right? Way back when, the Romans had drawn up the so-called Twelve Tables, so these were the basic foundation of Roman law, a kind of rights and duties charter for all the different social classes of the Republic. We actually don't know the contents of the Twelve Tables in full, but a lot of work has been done to piece them together, and we get the basic idea. So there seems to have been some laws in the Twelve Tables specifically against murder, for example, and it's often thought that the tables also contained laws against malum carmen and poisoning. Now, we might think malum carmen meant bad singing, but it actually referred to incantations, so evil songs. Imagine if we had a penalty of death for bad singing today. The top 40 charts would be thinned out real quick. But anyway, our evidence for this is thin, but we do think such a law existed. Fast forward to 82 BCE, and the Cornelian law that we mentioned before is passed under the dictator Sulla. He passed a lot of laws in his period of de facto head of state. But as the title suggests, this didn't 
actually say anything about magical incantations. It was basically a heavy-handed public order measure with a view to putting stop to robberies and highwaymen and poisoning and this sort of stuff, which is going on a lot in the turbulent times of the late Republic. But to this law was later added a senatus consultum. This is a kind of emergency law passed by the Senate in an emergency sitting, prohibiting mala sacrificia, evil ceremonies. So this is something like magical rituals, right? Rituals intended to hurt someone. This is where the magic comes in. However, despite the fact that we've been talking a bit in the podcast in a loose way about how magia was illegal in the Roman state, there actually isn't anything like a comprehensive ban across the board in the fundamental documents of Roman law, such as they are. Note here the specifically religious flavor of the term mala sacrificia, also called in some legal contexts impia sacrificia, ceremonies which go against the accepted ancestral norms or something like that. The Romans, at least in Sulla's time, though maybe not when the Twelve Tables were assembled, the Romans in Sulla's time had a perfectly good Greek loanword, magia, but they didn't use it in this legal context. They spoke instead of bad religion, not the band, but the practice. So here is our old methodological problem of the impossible to define border between magic and religion popping up. See episode seven for more on this. When we look at the Roman laws against magic, the first thing we notice is that they don't mention magic. However, Apuleius does. He, according to him, is accused of magicorum maleficiorum, uh, magical acts designed to cause harm. So we'll come back to some of this terminology. But it's interesting that he says that his charge is one of magia. This is very common in his defense speech. So presumably it was very common in the um, prosecutor's speeches as well. They're calling what he does magia, we, we can assume. So what is Apuleius' defense? Well, his defense is... First of all, of course, just the power of rhetoric. As a sophistical orator of some standing, he's well-placed to defend himself because there's nothing the Romans like so much as a well-crafted legal speech. We remember Cicero today for a whole wide-ranging body of work, the gold standard of Golden Age Latin. But in his own day, he was a proper superstar at Rome, mainly because of his epic legal speeches. So to understand the courtroom scene... We need to imagine our way into a legal system where long, ornate, finely crafted set-piece speeches were the order of the day, and an art form in themselves that the audience would appreciate. The trial took place at Sabratha, a small provincial city of around 30,000 people, much like Oya uh, and nearby. The basilica there has been excavated, and we can be pretty sure that this building is where the trial would have taken place. Now, the presiding magistrate is the proconsul, Caius Claudius Maximus. A proconsul was a Roman provincial governor who had almost unlimited power in his province. He was like a wandering embodiment of the emperor. He could decide what cases to hear, and his words in court were basically the embodiment of Roman law. Everything that came out of his mouth was written down by a legal clerk and sort of put in the record. Indeed, in far-flung provincial cities, it might be that the Roman law, to a large degree, came and went with the proconsul. 
with more local informal arrangements taking over as soon as he and his retinue left town. So, at any rate, you need to impress this guy, right? This Claudius Maximus may or may not have been the same Claudius Maximus as the Stoic philosopher of that name who taught Marcus Aurelius. But it is at any rate certain that he is an educated, cultivated man. And it is to this educated, cultivated side that Apuleius constantly appeals. He basically addresses the proconsul as a friend, making common cause with him as one learned man to another against the unphilosophical rabble. And this is very relevant to esotericism, as we shall return to at the end of this episode. Apuleius's basic defense claim, then, is that his accusers are boors, they are dullards, they are uneducated fools who mistake philosophia, philosophy, for magia. So there's this purely strategic use of philosophia in this speech, the we philosophers, we understand what's really going on kind of vibe addressed to the proconsul. Maximus is described as having sapientia, providentia, doctrina, and perfecta eruditio, all Latin terms basically meaning he's really well-educated. Now, for his part, Apuleius quotes everyone in his speech, from Homer and the Greek lyric poets, through the early, late Republican, and contemporary Roman writers. Uh, his favorite seems to be Virgil, but he also quotes the Athenian lawgiver Solon. He quotes Plato a whole lot. He quotes the early Latin epicist Ennius, the poet Catullus, and many more. So this is Hellenist education of the second sophistic in action. We have every reason to believe that Apuleius really could quote huge passages of these authors from memory on the spot. So even if there was a slight or large editing of his speech before publication, he really was whipping out enormous amounts of Homer and everything in the courtroom on the spot without notes. The dude is a walking library, and so is the proconsul, who's expected to be able to smile gently at each apposite citation. But there's much more going on here with philosophia than this basic kind of uh, strategic use of the term. Indeed, right at the beginning of the speech, Apuleius says that he's defending not only himself, but philosophy, who cannot be accused of even the tiniest of faults. So this is another interesting strategic move, a use of distraction. So it's not about me, it's about philosophy, but it's what Apuleius does with it that's interesting to us from the point of view of esotericism. I'm going to summarize here and sort of cherry pick because I think what we're most interested in this podcast is the ways in which religion and magic are being assimilated to esoteric philosophy. But let's have a look at the trial speech. So first of all, let's look at the things which Apuleius has done, which the prosecution say are evidence of magic. First of all, he gave some guy some toothpaste of his own devising. They presumably want to imply that he's been making potions or pharmaca or, you know, magical elixirs. Recall the connection between magia and venefica. But he pretty quickly clears up the whole toothpaste problem by making it into a joke. Then there's the fact that he composes verses. Sed quid ad magica maleficia, quod ego puero scriboni laiti amici mei carmine laudawi. An ideo magus quia poeta? Am I therefore a mage because I'm a poet? Apuleius is here saying that being a poet does not make one a magus, but it's interesting that there is an implied counterclaim that it does. 
We've already seen that Malum Carmen, evil incantation, was on the statute books as a criminal offense. It was, I think, clear that one of the ways in which evil magic worked was through incantations, right? Literally songs or poetry with ritual power. Apuleius' defense is that this kind of work with words is rather the sign of an educated man, as backed up by his liberal quotations from all the poets of every era. But this is an important bit of evidence that wordsmithery could be recognized as illegal behavior. Apuleius quotes some of his erotic verses, written to boys, as an illustration of the innocence of his poetic works, which is also interesting for the light it sheds on Roman cultural norms. As a side note here, it's interesting to consider the fact that persuasive rhetoric of exactly the sort that this defense speech is a you know, classic exemplum of could certainly be seen as definitionally magical, right? Using words to change people's opinions, causing change in accordance with will, as it were. But this way of reading is very modern and anachronistic. Although it should be said that Plato himself has called rhetoric a pharmacon, a poison or magical ritual. So this connection between words and their power of manipulation and magic was one that occurred at least to Plato. It's interesting that poetic metrical composition is feared as potentially magical, but the more everyday magic of the con man or the orator or the lawyer is regarded somehow as being innocuous. But anyway, back to our speech. Apuleius has been accused of owning a mirror. Okay, first of all, to contextualize here, mirrors were fairly rare in antiquity. They were expensive luxury items by today's standards. So everyone today has a mirror, but back in the day, very few people did. But the accusation must surely have revolved around the well-known use to which mirrors and other reflective surfaces were put in divinatory rituals, such as are found in the Greek magical papyri. Either some form of scrying is meant, or perhaps more addressative magical practices, which can also use mirrors. Apuleius pretends that he understands none of this. This is an interesting bit of disingenuity on his part, because as we know from the Metamorphoses, he's actually well aware of all manner of magical lore, but here he gives a long rambling disquisition on mirrors, alleges that mirrors are important to philosophers for studying the properties of optics and this sort of thing, and doesn't let even a whisper about scrying or magic slip. So he basically makes a big smokescreen about how, as a philosopher, of course he owns a mirror. Then, after these introductory skirmishes, Apuleius does something fascinating. Lovers of Western esotericism take note. This is Apologia 25-27, to where he argues in several stages that magia, of which he has been accused, is actually a good thing, is actually, in fact, philosophia. So, he asks, quid sit magus? What is a magus? What is a mage? First, he gives the answer that a magus is a Persian sage, educated in the arts of divine worship. So he's going back to the roots of the term magos in the Persian sphere. See episode 8 of the podcast for more about these magoi. Here's what he says, quote, For if, as I read in many places, magos in the language of the Persians is what we call a sacerdos, that's a priest, in ours, 
then what is the crime in being a priest with a solemn familiarity, knowledge, and skill with the rules of ritual, and with what is licit in ceremonies with the legalities of religions? End of quote. So this last bit is a clunky translation of leges ceremoniarum fas sacrorum jus religionum. Note that leges and jus are both terms very much at home in the field of law. We often translate both of them as law in various contexts. Jus is where we get the word justice and related terms. So there's an implied emphasis here on the perfectly legal nature of everything which a magus might be an expert in. Alongside the term fas, which refers to all that which is allowed by custom, by what normal salt-of-the-earth people think is permitted. Its opposite, nefas, is a term something like forbidden. It applies to things like cannibalism and parricide, for example, the stuff that Romans feel is totally beyond the pale. Never mind legal context, this is just stuff that is wrong, it's forbidden. So we have the twin concepts of legal under Roman law and allowed by custom being evoked in the contexts of, well, rituals, ceremonies. If Apuleius is right here, then any ritual done by Emagos is ipso facto of the best quality religious character. The Magos, far from being a practitioner of religio illicita, is a practitioner of the highest, best form of religion here in Rome as in Persia. This is the claim. Whatever the nuances of religio and magia here, and a lot more could be said about these, and whatever way in which we might want to model the different spheres involved, it's clear that what Apuleius is saying is that this thing you call magia is in fact what we call religio, by which I mean proper ritual service of the gods. Boom. Once again, we are looking at good religion, as in Book 11 of the Metamorphoses. Jumping ahead in the speech for a second, right after a major discourse on fish, which we will get to, Apuleius will give us more information about the good philosophical religion by goading his accuser. So this is chapter 39 of the Apology. Do you think it therefore fitting for a philosopher, not uncultivated and unlearned according to the abandonment of the cynics, but one who is mindful of belonging to the school of Plato? Do you think it is shameful that he should either know or not know about these things, ignore them or devote effort to them, to know how much of divine providence is in them, or just trust in mummy and daddy concerning the immortal gods. End of quote. So the point here is not that the philosopher disbelieves in the gods. Indeed, he elsewhere attacks Aemilianus for this sort of impiety, an attack which has actually been conjectured to be using anti-Christian polemics against Aemilianus. Uh, not that he's a Christian, but that he's being sort of compared to one to make him look really, really bad and really impious. But rather, that the philosopher inquires into the natural world, seeking to know how the gods make it, how they produce it, what the divine order within nature is, and so forth. In other words, philosophic religion of a sort, Platonist philosophic religion. So, Magia is the finest form of philosophic religion. So far, so good. Apuleius then goes on to distinguish between two understandings of the term magus. The one, a practitioner of divinely pleasing religious rites, which he's just laid out, and the second, as understood by the uneducated crowd, the Wulgus, as a man with power to commit all manner of miraculous things. 
So something like the witches in the Metamorphoses. Apuleius argues, and here I think he actually has a point, that if Aemilianus really believed that Apuleius could do these things, he would never have dared to bring him to trial in the first place. As he puts it, a man who accuses a poisoner in court is careful when he eats. So the argument here is quite effective rhetorically. And we can break it down as, there are two uses of the term magos, the cultivated proper one I've just educated you all about, and the stupid one, which is a worker of wonders, a kind of wizard. An implied clause follows, you, Aemilianus, either think I am magus definition one or magus definition two, since you are certainly a member of the wolgos, the uncultivated masses, will go with two, but you don't really believe I'm a wizard, because if you did, you would never have the guts to accuse me of being one, as I could destroy you through magic. An implication, not stated overtly, is that wizards like this don't really exist. They are superstitious folly. So Apuleius is sort of smuggling in two attacks on his accuser. That of stupidity for believing in wizards, and that of bad faith for pretending he thinks Apuleius is one when he can't really believe this. Now, he doesn't come out and say, wizards don't exist and anyone who believes they do is stupid. And there are probably very good reasons for not doing this. Pretty much everyone did believe in wizards, I think, in this period, or at least had an open mind on the subject. And it seems like kind of Roman law believed in wizards, or at least took the time to make wizardry illegal. So probably you couldn't get away with denying the uh, existence of wizards in court, or at least it wouldn't be, it would, it would muddy the waters, let's say. Finally, Apuleius will equate the magus with the philosopher. Actually, let's quote this passage in full as it's very important. Chapter 27, quote, but philosophers are generally charged with a certain error by ignorant people who think on the one hand that those of them like Anaxagoras, Leucippus, Democritus, and Epicurus and other specialists in the natural world who investigate the basic and simple causes of physical things are irreligious. And by this token, they say that they reject the gods. Well, on the other hand, those who more zealously investigate the providential setup of the world and heartily honor the gods, these they vulgarly call mages, as though they actually knew how to do those things which they know are done. As once was the case with Epimenides, Orpheus, Pythagoras, and Ostanes, and similarly the purifications of Empedocles, the Daimonion of Socrates, and the good of Plato have been cast under suspicion. Well, I congratulate myself for being counted among such a distinguished group. End of quote. Now, a few comments on this passage. First of all, the compressed Latin I've translated as, as though they actually knew how to do those things which they know are done, is very difficult to understand. What it means is, those who study the divine order in nature, that is the way in which the gods have arranged the world providentially, idiots call them mages, implying that they can perform these kinds of divine orderings of reality that they in fact only study. I hope that's clear. It's a, it's a lovely bit of high temperature oratory in the original. The idea is like, we study all the wondrous things that happen in nature that the gods have set up, but these morons think that we because we study them, we can somehow do them. We can do things like bring the moon down from the sky and cause earthquakes and all this kind of stuff, but of course we can't. Secondly, note the wonderful lineage of philosophers which Apuleius constructs here. First come the physikoi, as they're generally known in Greek doxography, 
although Epicurus is a curious member for this group. But anyway, these were seen as being mainly concerned with what we would call physics, chemistry, stuff like that. Then there is a second, more prestigious band of thinkers, most of whom are familiar to listeners of this podcast, but some of whom would not immediately suggest themselves as examples of philosophers. Epimenides is a legendary Greek sage predating Pythagoras associated with the Pythagorean stories of soul travel. He was known to leave his body. Orpheus is, of course, the theologian poet Orpheus, associated in at least the 4th century BCE with an esoteric philosophical tradition of interpretation. Pythagoras is, well, Pythagoras. Ostanes is a legendary Persian or Magian sage whose name is associated with that of Zoroaster in Greek tradition, sometimes as his student, sometimes his teacher, and so on. Empedocles, Socrates, and Plato are themselves, but note how they're grouped together based on a criterion that their relations with the gods, or concepts about the gods, have been thought by the ignorant to have been impious. Quite cool. Apuleius is proud to count himself among this group, the purveyors of the true philosophic religion, so he's giving himself the moral high ground here, through a lineage. Now before we get onto the incident of the fish, we should reflect for a moment on this constructed lineage. This should be familiar stuff to lovers of Western esotericism. We have most of the greats of esoteric philosophy. No Aristotle, it must be said, but he hasn't really come to be esotericized yet in the second century. Well, the process is ongoing, and as we shall see when we look at alchemy in an upcoming episode, he is being esotericized at this time, but he doesn't feature on the radar of some Platonists, at least. Although Apuleius will mention him a little bit later in the context of the magical fish. Uh, we also have Ostanis representing the barbarian sages of yore. This is a fairly representative, even classic, esoteric Platonist wisdom lineage. I call it esoteric for good reasons. Although we haven't yet discussed what's so esoteric about this trial, we shall do so in short order. But before we get into that, we need to talk about the fish. After chapters 25 to 27, which are sort of a first climax of the speech, Apuleius dives back into the charges against him. Among them, he purchased some fish, allegedly for magical purposes. This leads him into a long discourse about fish, fish as discussed by the poets, the many scientific aspects to the question of fish, fish as food, fish in Greek, fish in Latin. He says, in short, a whole lot about fish. The one thing he denies is that fish could possibly have any magical application whatsoever, implying that the whole thing is ludicrous, just like he did with the mirror only at greater length. Now we have two articles by Bradley and Nelson, which show quite conclusively that there is in fact an enormous number of magical applications of fish in magical traditions coming from Apuleius' time and earlier. And we can probably conclude that Apuleius, a sedulous observer of magical lore, as we have seen by the contents of the Metamorphoses, is being disingenuous again here. And he does come off as rather shifty as to why he wanted the fish. But never mind, listeners can read the text and decide for themselves on the question of whether he in fact did obtain these particular species for nefarious magical purposes. The final major charge against him that we want to mention is that Apuleius had a small statue, an image said to be that of a skeleton, which he calls Basileus, the king in Greek, and he uses for dark ritual purposes. 
Now here, he doesn't deny having the image. Indeed, he produces it in court, a small wooden statuette of Hermes Mercury, instead justifying its possession as a solemn and normal piece of personal ritual apparatus. Now, there's a lot that can be said here, and I for one wonder whether he hasn't produced a quite normal-looking Mercurius in place of whatever the skeletal evil-looking statue might have been on the assumption that he really did have a statue like that. And maybe he didn't. But why not? Romans had all manner of weird talismans all over the place, and weirder stuff has been found than a skeleton statue. Nor need we assume that such a statue would have been used for aggressive ritual purposes. It could just be part of some odd Romano-Egyptian cult and, you know, perfectly innocuous. But anyway, the main point to bring out here is Apuleius's justification. Statues like this Mercurius are approved of by Plato in the laws as befitting the religious observances of a philosopher. Case closed. Now, at chapter 64, there is another crucial passage which we should discuss before we move on to the question of esotericism and all this. Apuleius has just finished with the statue, passing it around the courtroom, and everyone's having a good laugh at, ha ha ha, they thought it was a skeleton, and look, it's just a beautiful youth with long hair, looking like Hermes. Then he begins this next passage with what seems awfully like a curse, especially in the context of a defense speech, specifically against charges of using magic. But apparently this curse is delivered, ironically, perhaps as playing on the superstitious fears of a man like Emilianos. So here's the quote, chapter 64. But to you, Emilianos, may that god, the go-between of the heavenly and underworld gods, i.e. Mercurius Hermes, may that god requite that lie of yours with the displeasure of the gods of both worlds, and grant that you meet the shadows of the dead and every kind of shade, limur, underworld deity, and larwa, and may he thrust before your eyes every night-walking fiend, every tomb-dwelling specter, whom you are anyway not far removed from on account of your age and character. But for our part, we of the Platonic family are familiar only with what is fine and joyous, what is majestic and heavenly and celestial. No, in its zeal for the heights, that sect has even tread the regions higher than the very heavens, and stood upon the back of the world. Maximus knows that I speak the truth, since he has carefully read of the super-celestial place in the Phaedrus. The same Maximus also understands perfectly, to respond to your accusation about the name, who he is whom Plato, not I, first called the king. All things, he says, this is Apuleius quoting Plato, depend upon the king of all things, and for him only all things exist. Maximus knows who that king is, the cause and ordering principle of the whole natural world, its first origin, the highest father of soul, the eternal safeguarder of all living things, the tireless craftsman of the world, but one who crafts without effort, who safeguards without care, who fathers without begetting, comprehended by neither space nor time nor any change, and thus comprehensible by few, sayable by none. Nay, I will further aggravate the suspicion of doing magic. I shall not answer you, Emilianus, to whom I give cult as king. Nay, even if the proconsul himself should interrogate me about the identity of my god, I am silent. End of quote. Boom! Now we come 
to the question of the esoteric in the Apology of Apuleius. I feel as though we can take this document as in fact a paradigmatic laying out of what I would call an esoteric middle Platonist philosophy in action. So following our definition of esoteric in the podcast, we need two aspects to be present for something to be esoteric. There must be some wisdom which is presented as being reserved for an initiated insider group, right? So there's the social side. And this wisdom must be of a higher order. It can't just be some ordinary secrets. It needs to be cosmic wisdom of some kind. So that's the, as it were, content side of esotericism. Now, it should be clear that both of these elements are very much present in Apuleius' speech. So he constructs an initiated elite made up of those with Hellenic paideia, able freely to roam the fields of the literary canon, plucking choice flowers and snippets of wisdom from this and that poet and so on, but also more specifically those educated in philosophy. And so here we see one potential social impact esotericism can have. In constructing a notional esoteric elite, of which he and the proconsul are members, Apuleius is in fact maybe keeping himself from being exiled, right? It pays to be in an initiated club with someone in a position of power or someone who is going to decide your fate in a court of law. And added to this inner-outer social dynamic, right, we have an esoteric wisdom transmitted by many of the greats, but especially Plato himself. We saw the transmission lineage earlier. A wisdom, indeed, which is so esoteric that, as we learn in this climactic chapter 64, it cannot be spoken. The insider-outsider dichotomy is buttressed by a number of speech acts. Not only are we told again and again in this speech about the difference between the common herd and the learned in philosophy, we're also told that true magia is philosophy, which is true religion. And the supreme god of this religion, we've just heard, a sort of standard middle Platonist eratology of the supreme god, the king, called from a number of sources in Plato's dialogues and probably from the pseudo-Platonic second letter, this supreme god is surrounded by silence. He's difficult to understand and impossible for anyone to say. Now, this is a Latin paraphrase of Plato's statement in the Timaeus that the maker of all things is difficult for most people to understand and even more difficult to express in words. But note that Plato's difficult to express has become ineffable. Paucis cogitabilis nemini effabilis. Comprehensible to few, sayable to none, to no one. But of course, Apuleius also depicts himself, quite illogically, as kind of taking a stand and refusing to speak. Quincy ipse proconsul interroget, quid sit deus meus taceo. Which is funny. If the god is ineffable anyway, surely he couldn't say his name even if he wanted to, right? This is the logic of esoteric spoken silence. The speech act of revealing the hiding. So we don't need to look for normal logic here beyond the logic of the rhetorics of esotericism in action. Now, we shall return to the very important question of the ineffable in Middle Platonism in an upcoming episode, in which this and many other passages from a number of authors will be parsed quite thoroughly. But 
For now, we'll simply note the way in which the speech act of making the supreme god unsayable, while knowable maybe to an elect few, enforces the social construct of esotericism, right? So it esotericizes true religion as magic, in a way, making it uh, inaccessible. And with that, we must end our episode and our mini-series on Apuleius, but don't worry, because the great Latin source for all things magico-philosophical shall return again as our greatest Middle Platonist Latin source for the development of the concept of ineffability. So stay tuned for that episode. But it wouldn't be possible to discuss the Middle Platonist development of ideas of ineffability without taking into account a few other texts and movements from the second century which are essential pieces of the puzzle. What about the Chaldean oracles, I hear you say, or the crucial thought of Numenius of Apamea? And what about early Christian thinkers like Clement, who are pioneers in apophatic writing? And by all that is ineffable, what about Basilides and the Valentinians and the other so-called early Gnostics? Very well, gentle listeners. If you want the really esoteric stuff, we can go there. So stay tuned for the amazing Chaldean oracles and prepare to have your soul leave your body and ascend to the noetic realm. Oh, and by the way, getting back to the Apology of Apuleius, we don't actually know for sure what the verdict of the trial was. Stay esoteric. <laughs>